It's so good to be able to be here in safety today. As was mentioned earlier, a good number of our membership are here and even some visitors as well. And we're so thankful for each and every individual that has assembled this morning. We do want each, of course, to have a safe journey in the remainder of your travels this day and in the succeeding days. It is a blessing, of course, and a great privilege that we have to assemble in the way we are today. And I hope for the next few moments we can at least reflect on a text spoken by our Jesus under great duress. We've just sung several songs about the greatness of His name. How wonderful it is, how exciting it is to in fact be able to wear that name in the way that we do. What about this text in John chapter 19? A moment ago, Andrew read from Acts 2.42 that in fact was of course not very many days later. But all of it harkens us back to some scenes. The statement Jesus made from the cross. Let me ask you to think about at least some of these introductory statements and then we will in fact give thought to three little words and that will be the thrust of our message this morning. When Jesus was on the cross, we well remember of course that He had ultimately found Himself in that predicament not by His own doing in the sense that these wicked and lawless people had put Him on the cross. He was guilty of no crime. Now He voluntarily submitted to it of course. He spoke more than once. On one occasion in particular, in Matthew 26, 53, He could have called legions of angels to deliver Him from that moment, but yet He endured it. You'll notice as we come to the bottom of this particular slide, one of the last statements our Savior ever made. John 19, verse number 30. I would invite you to notice it as I read it. John chapter 19, verse number 30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up the ghost. On that occasion, Jesus referred to something as having been finished. He referred to something as being completed. He referred to something as reached this final consideration. It is with that consideration I would invite you to roll forward with me this very morning. The scenes of the previous hours of our, of our Lord's life, compelling, moving, brings you and me to tears. To think of what He endured, to think of the way He endured it. Perhaps in you and in me there could easily well up so much hatred, so much animosity, so much vile consideration of great enemy nature toward those that were doing these things. And yet, as you can see, Jesus, in almost a helpless predicament, submitted Himself to these things. This picture is the scourging. We don't know that that's exactly what it looked like, but that's some artist's rendition of it. In John 19, verse number 1, as these trials had already taken place and they had accounted Him guilty of blasphemy. In fact, for the Jews, that was a capital offense. We well remember the Jews, though, had been stripped of the power of putting anybody to death. And so they went to Pilate and besought his consideration to kill Jesus. Pilate, of course, found no fault in him. Pilate more than once had said, This man, I find no fault in him. Surely we remember that it was Pilate's idea to hopefully agree along with the Jews that they would prefer Barabbas to Jesus, but they didn't. They wanted Barabbas freed, and they wanted Jesus crucified. And ultimately, Pilate washed his hands of that matter. He gave Jesus over at first to a scourging, and again, this picture identifies that thought. 
However, that isn't all. Because we know even that wasn't enough to satisfy them. One, I suppose, might have hoped that the bloodthirsty Jews might have been satisfied. Maybe this dire and great whipping, this beating, this scourging would be satisfactory and maybe their thirst would have been quenched. But it wasn't so. It wasn't so. Even after the scourging, they still wanted his life. And so it was that to Golgotha he went. They led him along that old trail, that, tri that particular roadway, if you will, and when they got there, we will remember that something like this was done to him. Driving nails in his hands and his feet, suspending him on this old cross. In light of all those things, you might still appreciate how much hatred might well have been in him. After all, look at what they'd done to him. We each cherish our life. We enjoy the pleasantness of good health. We get excited about the consideration of the contentment and tranquility and joy that comes in life. And yet they were stripping that, at least physically, from Jesus. That previous night, he had had no sleep. Remember after his institution of the Lord's Supper, if you please, and they went out to that garden of Gethsemane. And shortly thereafter, Judas came with the band and they arrested him. In the succeeding hours of that night and even the wee hours of that morning, he had undergone trials, mockeries of trials. The officials had desired false witnesses to come and make statements about him so that they could find something whereof they could accuse him. And even the false witnesses didn't agree. And finally, there was somebody that remembered him making some statement relative, of course, to his own body. And finally, it was on a charge no more significant than that that they levied the charge of blasphemy. You'll notice as you look at that picture, can you imagine standing there in that crowd, watching Jesus, watching Him on that cross? One by one, as you look at all those things, let me focus in on Him now, not the thieves that were beside Him, but on Him. While He was in a condition not unlike that, again, a number of statements... He made. Seven times from the cross he spoke. Seven times he made these monumental utterances, and we won't look at all seven of them this morning. It was only one of them that I would invite you to consider for the brief time of the lesson today. He had made some statements along the line about forgiveness. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. I'm sure your mind as well as mine stretches to contemplate the degree of love a statement like that demands. To in fact beseech the God of heaven that they might be forgiven, the very ones who had done that to you, the very ones who with lawless and merciless matters had in fact brought him to that place. And yet in Luke 23, 34, that's the very thing for which he had prayed. Aren't you and I remarkably amazed when, again, not many weeks later, we shall find that on that day of Pentecost, forgiveness is extended to those very same people. The gospel of Jesus Christ is preached to them. Peter himself had said in Acts 2, verses 22 to 23, that the very ones who had crucified the Son of God could now be forgiven. Doesn't that highlight for you and me just how powerful that blood is? Any sin of my life or of yours, if we approach the God of heaven with it based on that blood, we can rest assured that it can and shall be forgiven. 
if it could forgive those that did that, could it forgive my failures and my faults? Could it forgive your lack in wisdom, your foolish choices and mine? Sure it can. No wonder then as we come to consider this statement in John chapter 19, verse number 30. It says there, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, He said, It is finished. Three words. It is finished. As you think about that little phrase, the setting of this particular slide is, a, is an attempt on my part to at least focus the spotlight. Some of these things help us understand the greatness of this statement. Let's just pause to note this. The statement, it is finished. Maybe if we aren't careful, we might suppose that simply has reference to his physical life. I'm about to die. I'd submit to you that that really wasn't the main thing to which the Lord referred. When he said, it is finished, maybe this background will lead us to notice. Darkness had covered the land. For three stretching hours, though it was the midst of the day, darkness had in fact shadowed over the events of the human family, what men had chosen to do to put Jesus to death. And in that darkness, you'll notice Jesus made this statement. It is finished. The statement you'll notice at the middle of that slide. That word finished, just as you and I might suspect, it means to have reference to completing something to concluding something, to bring something to an end. And it would appear that there's a wondrous scope to that which Jesus stated. Many times you and I might notice the very purpose for which Jesus came and He Himself had stated it. I would ask you to notice in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. In Matthew 1.21, on the occurrence, really, of those moments not too long prior to his birth, that angelic visitor had told Joseph, He shall save his people from their sins. It is, in fact, that was the reason for which the name was given. Call him Jesus. And that word brings to our mind the thought of one who saves in fact, as you and I read the occurrence of that word, sometimes if you're reading other translations, it'll substitute the word Joshua. Now you and I notice the two aren't in all cases and considerations the same. But Joshua in the Old Testament was a name that had a similar significance. One who saves, and yet Jesus came to give His life a ransom for many. As he made that statement in Mark 10, verses 44 and 45. He said it with such power, such significance, and such meaning. Here was a situation, a circumstance, in which the Son of Man came to minister and give His life a ransom for many, He said. That word ransom signifies to purchase or to buy back. We were owned, you see, by the devil. We were fully members of that which was another, and Jesus came to purchase us away from Him and to make us one of His own. Inasmuch as the Lord came to do that, Jesus had even stated the means by which that ransom payment would be made, and it would involve His own life. He testified in several different occasions. I would ask you to remember the one in Luke 18, verses 31 to 34. Jesus on that occasion said, The Son of Man, He was headed to Jerusalem. 
He had his mind set toward moving toward that location despite the fact that in previous moments others had found it dangerous there. Jesus was determined to go. In fact, he even foretold what would happen. I'm going to be turned over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked and reviled and furthermore he'll be spat upon and then they'll kill him. The Lord knew very well what was about to transpire and yet... He trudged onward. All of this took place inasmuch as the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God described it so. As we close that slide together, may I ask you to notice again, Jesus said, It is finished. He didn't say, I am finished. It is finished. A picture. Now there's a picture of a puzzle. I'm sure we've each either put puzzles together or watched someone do it. Maybe we have enjoyed many hours of fun, of challenge even, especially for those thousand-piece puzzles. And yet, you'll notice in this one, every piece is in place but one. There was one piece missing. May I submit to you that in many ways that idea rests behind this text in John 19.30. The last puzzle piece by Jesus was about to be put in place. It's finished. Maybe you and I have celebrated or at least found great contentment after completing a puzzle. I wonder how much satisfaction and how much joy and happiness the Lord felt. Could I ask you to contemplate? That in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, the joy of the cross is discussed. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. As you and I read that, maybe it's easy to bypass it, but reference to joy in regard to the cross was made. Based on that picture we saw earlier, it seems there could be no joy, but there was. The last peace was about to be put in place. The peace that is so meaningful for you and for me. As we, in fact, continue on with our discussion of what that last peace was, let's develop it maybe like this. The Son of God knew very well, and so exceedingly so, the greatness of that last puzzle piece. It's a bit interesting to reflect that when you and I revisit the Old Testament, we notice that God had orchestrated the affairs of time for roughly 4,000 years under the time of Jesus. Forty centuries had come and gone. And during that time, God had brought about the features and considerations by virtue of the various laws of that time. This statement, you'll notice that there was something, of course, great that occurred. When God first made man, there was no sin. Adam and Eve lived in union not only with one another, but in perfect harmony with God. They lived in happiness, contentment, and joy in that they were in perfect harmony with God's will in every way. When he made them. But we well remember that that commandment that he gave, they chose to disobey. Eve took first of that forbidden fruit, that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she gave to Adam and he ate it too. And in so doing, their eyes were open. They knew they were naked and sin had entered into the human family. 
they disobeyed. As such, that alienated them from God and the severing that occurred that day put in, began to put in place a plan, the final puzzle piece Jesus was about to put in place. That plan had taken 4,000 years to culminate. That plan had taken all of that time to reach its fruition. You'll notice in Romans 3 verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That included Adam and Eve, it included Abraham and David and Isaac and Jacob, and it includes you and me as well. In 1 John 1 verse number 8, anybody who says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. And therefore we each are guilty in principle of that same thing of which Adam and Eve were guilty, disobedience. When sin comes into the life, we appreciate the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 and so the picture being painted is very bleak, isn't it? What if the Bible had ended at Genesis chapter 3? There'd be no hope for any of us. Absolutely none. Thanks be unto God it didn't end at Genesis chapter 3. In fact, beginning at that point, the remaining puzzle pieces are put in place, culminating in the great final one that we read about today. Sin causes separation from God. It alienates you and me from Him. You and I can picture God as this perfect and pristine and mad, one full of majesty. And yet you and I in sin are unholy. We're unclean and we're unrighteous. Habakkuk 1.13 informs us we can't approach to a righteous holy God when we're in that condition. Surely in light of all those things we then conclude this that though we're dead in trespasses and sins, isn't it great that without the shedding of blood is no remission? Now it's true, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, Hebrews 10 verse 4. And not only that, it was unable to cleanse the consciences of those who offered them. We've studied even this morning and in Sunday's past, in our Bible study hour, about the sacrifices that they offered and how that God did command them. Many sacrifices during the year... In fact, sometimes on the same day there were numbers of sacrifices. Sometimes bullocks, and sometimes rams, and sometimes goats, and sometimes lambs. Other cases there were turtle doves. And time and again, as those were offered, they never could purify the conscience because again, each year on the Day of Atonement, the priest had to go into the most holy place. And as he did so, he went in with blood one more time with the attempt to do that which was the will of God relative to the remission of their sins. And yet, it all looked forward to the last puzzle piece. The last one wasn't in place yet. Surely, in light of it, you'll notice Jesus said, It is finished. Lord, what is it that's finished? As you close that slide with me, maybe it leads us to this. The purpose characteristic of you and me as we give thought to that last puzzle piece. Because with that offering, you and I are able to be right with God. It is finished. God's plan for the forgiveness of human sin is now in place. With the death of Christ, His blood being shed, the opportunity to approach God through Him and by Him, you and I can now enjoy the marvelous hope of heaven forevermore. Forgiveness of sin the opportunity to live 
faithfully and, and in harmony with Him. No wonder then the purpose of life can so readily be seen in some of the thoughts on that slide. As you start from the top with me, each and every one of us, of course, God knows us individually. He knows about you and He knows about me. He knows the talents, capabilities, and potential that's within you just as surely as He does that for me. But of course, with this statement by Jesus, it is finished. There's one other great desire that God has, and it's His will that we be a part of His family, that we enjoy forgiveness of sin, so that we can have the joy and contentment here and look forward to being with Him there. Oh, what a miserable kind of life. It must be at the most basic level when one fails to understand the final puzzle piece. It is finished. Never will there need to be any changes to that plan of salvation. It's finished. Didn't Jesus say, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? What's the gospel? The Lord made that statement, didn't He, in Mark 16, 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4, the gospel is identified. It is that message predicated on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is finished. Aren't you still thankful that these 20 centuries later, the fact that it was finished hasn't changed in the slightest because it never needs to be amended. It never needs to be altered or modified in any way. And so this purpose statement on this slide helps you and me appreciate what is the purpose then for which I can appreciate this finishing. It boils down to being a Christian and to living faithfully to Him. And if I have missed that, then the last puzzle piece hasn't benefited me in the way God intended. In 2 Peter 3, verse number 9, on that occasion, the inspired writer said, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't want anybody to be lost. He doesn't want anyone to suffer the fires of an eternal hell. He sent His Son to finish a plan such that all would have opportunity to be saved. Today the church beautifully and powerfully proclaims that very same message and shall do so until time shall be no more because it's finished. It's finished. The purpose statement then on that slide challenges each of us, as you can see, to then notice how diligent are you and me as we give thought to serving the Master. If it's finished, shouldn't that be the central focus of your life and mine? Jesus put it like this in Luke 9, 23. He said there, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's a good question for me as well as for you. Am I denying myself in appropriate ways? Am I then seeking to follow Him thoroughly and completely? Because it's finished. And there shall never be any changes to that plan. As you and I close that slide, doesn't that form for us the feature of moving in the direction of life? And so the conclusion of our lesson today. I hope you have been motivated and encouraged as I have been to at least for a few minutes think about that last puzzle piece. 
You can picture it with me, can't you? Jesus hanging on the cross, and of all the statements He could have chosen to make near the end of His life in the flesh, it was this one for the reasons we've studied this morning. Even those there standing at the foot of the cross, they were going to have a chance now to be saved because it's finished. The very ones to whom Paul later would preach throughout the New Testament era as he wrote those New Testament books, they too would be able to appreciate it's finished. And it wasn't just finished for those living in Jerusalem. It was for all mankind everywhere. That means you and me today as well. It is finished. There was a grand mission to the Lord's life. When He was born in Bethlehem of Judea, the cross in many ways was in the distance. You see, He was born to die. I know that sounds a bit harsh, but for Him, that's the way it was because He came with a mission and He now claimed it to be finished. He did what the God of heaven had wished Him to do and He did the Lord's will completely. May I submit to you that that, of course, is a great motivation for you and me. Am I doing His will completely? If He died on the cross for me, should I not live for Him? For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died, then we're all dead, and that He died for all, that they which live for Him should not live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. That's the statement of 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. As we close this lesson today, I suppose each of us are in a position to reflect personally. Are you thankful for the last puzzle piece? Are you thankful for the one that put it in place? If you are, then are you living for Him? Does your life manifest your appreciation? I hope we can each abundantly say the answer is yes. If there would be anyone in the audience, though, for which that's not the case, maybe you have realized now the urgency of this moment. If we could, in fact, assist you in your public response to the gospel, why not let us do that? If you never become a Christian, the Lord has said that that last puzzle police identifies that you need to believe in Him, you need to repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If we could pray, though, for the rededication of an erring Christian, we'd be happy to do that too. We would only ask you to let us know the way we could assist you, and you do so at once. While together we stand and sing.